Hey, everybody. I've gotten sucked into watching the Olympics. How about you? Beach volleyball is my favorite to date. Does Russia have a beach volleyball team? Where do they practice? I guess that's globalism. Talking about much more important questions about our ever-shrinking world, next on The Matt Townsend Show. Good afternoon. For BYU Radio News, I'm Ian Jones. Here are some of the stories we're following today. The British government says Syria's most senior diplomat in London has defected. More from AP correspondent Charles de Ledesma. Khaled El Ayoubi, the charge d'affaires in London, has told officials that he wasn't willing to represent the Syrian regime any longer. The British government's foreign wing, in turn, is urging others to follow El Ayoubi's example, to dissociate themselves from the crimes committed against the Syrian people and to support a peaceful and free future for Syria. El Ayoubi's departure represents a huge blow to Assad and his regime. Charles de la Desma, London. A Florida airboat captain loses his hand and some cash after trying to feed an alligator. AP correspondent Dave Ferry reports. In the true meaning of adding insult to injury, Wallace Weatherholt was charged last week with unlawful feeding of an alligator and had to post $1,000 bond. The charge came after the Florida airboat captain had his hand bitten off by the alligator. Weatherholt was attacked on June 12th as he was giving an Indiana family a tour of the Everglades. The family said Weatherholt hung a fish over the side of the boat and had his hand at the water's surface when the alligator attacked. Weatherholt's hand was found but could not be reattached. The gator was tracked down and euthanized. I'm Dave Ferry. Charges were brought against Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall employees that were claiming unemployment benefits. AP correspondent Martin DeCaro explains. Like so many other Americans these days, the 35 workers in this case were laid off. Many of them were ushers. But they got rehired, and they're now accused of reaping between ten dollars and $38,000 each in illegal unemployment benefits. Investigators say during the periods when they were working, the employees continued to fill out online forms claiming they hadn't found the job yet. An estimated $1.5 million were taken. Madison Square Garden and Radio City have not been accused of any wrongdoing. Martin DeCaro, New York. There's something new to see outside Beaver Stadium where the bronze statue of former Penn State football coach Joe Paterno once stood. The AP's Ed Donahue reports. Trees were planted over the weekend, about a week after the seven-foot statue of Paterno was taken down. Penn State student Monica Douglas doesn't think replacing the statue with trees was meant to send any message about the sex abuse scandal involving former Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky. Probably to cover up. To begin with, I, don't, I think eventually it'll become some like sort of memorial, but for now, I think it was just to take care of it, erase it. Penn State has not said what is going to happen to the Paterno statue. I'm Ed Donahue. The U.S. economy grew at an annual rate of just 1.5 percent from April through June. AP correspondent David Melendi has more. Second quarter GDP is what economists expected, but still, says economist Gus Fauché at PNC Financial. That's disappointing. Americans cut back sharply on spending, businesses held on to lots of revenue, and Europe was a big drag. But Fauché thinks that's all about to change. I think we will see a little bit stronger growth in the second half of this year. He says he believes the worst is behind in Europe. The housing sector is starting to pick up, interest rates are low, and the weakness in business spending is temporary. And as businesses start to spend more... I do expect to see stronger hiring. David Melendi, Washington. And that's all for now from the BYU Radio Newsroom. Thanks for joining us here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Ian Jones.
Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the program. My name is Matt Townsend, your guide on the side, your uh, life coach, your relationship coach. We do what we can on our program every single day to take you and your, uh, give you and your loved ones the tools, the ideas, the help you need to make it through this crazy thing we call life. Welcome to the show, everybody. I think we've got a doozy for you. Great topic, great uh, opportunity, I think, to discuss something that you might be noticing as you're watching the Olympics. Now, I cannot stop watching. And the problem is I don't have very much time to do it. But I, I'm loving it. And it's interesting. I love the I love the sports. I love just seeing all of these different um, competitions going on, different things. But the the thing that's really more interesting for me is to is to see what's happening, kind of culturally, to see what's going on in the world, and um, just to hear the stories behind these athletes, to hear the stories of what's going on with each of them. Love it. Can't get enough of it. How about you? Now, as you're sitting at home. I, I just to me, it just kind of it's something about it shows me how vulnerable I am because I don't think I understand half of these cultures. I don't think I understand any of them, quite honestly. And if I had to pull out a map and show you where all of these different uh, contestants are from, where all of these different countries being represented, as I saw the parade of athletes go through and the parade of countries go through, how many of those do I know anything really about? And what do I know about these countries? Usually to me, it seems like I know very little, and it's kind of uh, – I, I almost feel like I'm, I'm super naive to it, and, and I wanted to take a time, an opportunity on this show to see if we couldn't increase our cross-cultural approach to life. Um, I, I think we are just so segregated off into our own little countries, our own little worlds. We celebrate the gold. I mean, it's interesting to me that when you go on some of the sites around uh, the Olympics, you can see that there's this huge competition. And of course, you know, you want America to win. God bless America. The United States rocks, right? Um, except uh, it seems like there's more to the Olympics than that. That opening ceremonies was was more than I think just about Great Britain. There's something about a global people. We all are highly dependent upon each other. We see that at times of war. And as we just listen to the headlines, the crazy headlines that come out, I mean, about Syria right now, how many of us know very much about Syria at all? And there's a major, major um, battle going on there. How much of us even know What's going on there? Or just the headlines. I was just running through the headlines. Mitt Romney offended Great Britain, right? Barack Obama apparently offended the Polish because he called the concentration camps the Polish concentration camps. The South Korean flag mishap. Have you heard of that one? That was just the beginning of the Olympics. The London Olympic organizers mistakenly displayed the South Korean flag on a jumbo screen instead of the North Korean flag before a women's soccer match. So they put up a North Korean picture and they placed the South Korean flag next to that. Now, if you know much about the Korean War, that's a big deal. Yet the funny thing about it, they wouldn't do it. So for one hour, the the game was stopped until the flags were fixed and then they would they would uh, take the field. Now, it seems like it's a no-brainer, not a big deal. It's just an accident. Everybody get over it. But if you notice, it's almost culture by culture, country by country. We have a ton of tension, a ton of people that are at odds with each other because we just simply, I don't think, fully understand or necessarily fully see how truly connected we are. It seems like we are one world disaster away 
from having um, having to having to come together. For example, India just had a power failure. You may have heard about a simple power outage, right? No big deal in India. Not a big deal. Three hundred and seventy million people were in the dark for hours. Three hundred and seventy million people are out in the dark because of one power failure. Did you even hear about it? So 370 million people of this 7 billion person globe didn't have power, and we may not have even heard about it. What else are we not hearing about because culturally we're not listening? How do we handle the globalization of the world? How do we handle it and actually, I guess, not be overwhelmed by it and um, and kind of not be so out of, uh, I don't know, what's out of sorts that we've become afraid like all of this outsourcing of jobs. I mean, we're becoming a global economy. And on today's show, we're going to be bringing in an expert, um, a professor, a teacher at our university here at Brigham Young University that teaches globalization classes. And just she's going to teach us a few things. She's going to give us some ideas, some tools for how to handle or understand and better understand cross-cultural living, a cross-cultural world. And what are some things we should be looking for that maybe we could pick out of the Olympics as we're watching? Now, there should be no better opportunity, right, for us to unite as a world than the Olympics. Yet the Olympics remains very much a contest of nations. Ben Wagner reports on the effect of the national pride and globalization on the Olympic Games. Every two years, the eyes of the world focus on some poor, underprepared city as the Earth's best athletes, along with the global sports media industrial complex, descend for the Olympic Games, a two-week-long celebration of sports we can only stand to watch once every four years. The London Games, the 30th Summer Olympiad of the Modern Era, are currently dominating your NBC network and your social media feed, constantly barraging you with women's archery, shots of the River Thames, and lots of official partners. But as with every Olympics, the Games bring more than just pleasant feelings and poor renditions of obscure national anthems. As always, there is controversy. This go-around, we've been pretty lucky so far. The biggest controversies were Mitt Romney and David Cameron's shouting match and an uproar over NBC's extremely short-sighted decision to do tape-delayed instead of live broadcast. Relatively minor controversies compared to those of Olympics past. Doping, bribing, judge-fixing, political tension, discrimination, violence, terrorism, all forms of scandals and tragedies have befallen the Olympics over the last century. During the last few years, there has arisen the suggestion that countries or national Olympic teams should be eliminated from the competition, instead focusing the Olympics on the individual athletes, the thought being that the Olympics have become a nationalistic endeavor, which in fact defies the philosophy of the Olympic Charter. As it is currently constructed in order to qualify for the Olympics, athletes must be selected by their country's National Olympic Committee, or NOC. Now, NOCs often find themselves dependent on government funding, thus becoming an extension of the government's politics. Governments see the NOC and the Olympics as a chance for national propaganda and a chance to create a sense of nationalism in their home countries, this leading to a heightened desire to win. Now, this has led to instances of judge-fixing, doping, and bribery. But furthermore, politics have consistently marred the Olympics since their inception in the modern era. In 1936, Hitler attempted to use the Berlin Games to demonstrate the superiority of his Aryan race. In 1972, terrorists killed Israeli athletes in Munich. And during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States were constantly at odds during the Olympic Games, going so far as to boycott the Olympics held in each other's countries. 
Proponents of abolishing the national Olympic system also advocate that the system is outdated in the era of globalization. It might have been easier 100 years ago to have athletes qualify in their home countries, but with advances in transportation and communication, perhaps athletes should qualify at a global, worldwide level, not at the national one. Realistically speaking, this will never happen. Fiscally, the Olympics market themselves as a chance to watch your countries compete against the rest of the world. As much as globalization has broken down barriers, we still self-identify as British or Spanish or American. Four years ago, America wasn't glued to the TV set to watch Michael Phelps win eight medals. For better or worse, they were there to see an American win eight medals. Excellent job, Ben. Uh, it is. It's an interesting idea. You know, the idea of of uh, you know globalizing the the Olympic movement. You know, deconstructing the national pride of each country. I don't know. That, that doesn't seem like that seems like a big problem eventually. However, the idea that we could all sit and celebrate the athletes and their stories. And hear all the stories. Can you imagine just the stories we're hearing from the American athletes? Powerful. What if we could hear every story from all of the athletes in every culture? Powerful opportunity. We're going to be bringing on a cultural expert, Crystal Radley, a second-year graduate student, to give us some insight, teach us how to see the world in maybe a more global way, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. Next, we'll explain how NASA software telescopes the waiting lines in hospitals so everybody gets their turn. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Of all the places to have to sit around and wait, a hospital has to rank as one of the worst. You're sick, you need a special x-ray or scan, so you take time off from work and schedule an appointment. But then a sudden accident fills the ER with unexpected emergency patients and everyone's schedule gets disrupted. Getting all the schedules to line up again for all the patients and staff could take days or longer. NASA has already solved this problem. Only the waiting room was 569 kilometers up in orbit. The Hubble Space Telescope is a singular science resource, quite literally. One little peephole on infinity with a line of thousands lined up for their turn to use it, not unlike an expensive medical scanning facility in a hospital. So it was logical that Hubble's flexible scheduling software be adapted to manage another kind of viewing resource. The software, called OnCue, already shows results. Staff overtime was reduced at one hospital by over a third, while seeing 12% more patients in the same time span. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. The Kennedy Center's Global Awareness Lecture invites international diplomats, scholars, and talented individuals to speak on issues affecting the global community. The big problem is not Russia and the United States. What worries me is some of these rogue countries with their crazy dictators 
increase your global awareness, enjoy the insights of extraordinary speakers, and keep up with the world around you by tuning in to Notes from the Kennedy Center, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're taking on the concept of globalization with the Olympics going on. I guess it's one thing to understand the value of sports globally. We want to see if we can't appreciate just maybe the humanity of people global-wide, nationwide, or worldwide. We want to see if we can't connect into it a, a little deeper. So we're going to be bringing on an expert who can help us with this, uh, Crystal Radley. We'll bring her on in a minute. But before we do, you know, a lot of us have heard of the word globalization, but we aren't necessarily sure what it means. Here's Corinne Collins reporting on some of the economic and cultural effects that globalization can have on communities and individuals. According to statistics from the Global Issues Human Development Report, 50% of the world population lives on less than $2.50 a day, and 8% of people live on less than $10 a day. The number of children that die each day due to poverty is 22,000. The number of people in developing countries with inadequate access to water is 1.1 billion, and the number of children living in poverty worldwide is 1 billion. These children live in various family and economic circumstances and have unique stories of their struggles and joys. Fight Poverty, an organization that helps to combat child poverty, shares some of the stories of children living in Brasta World. Ali is one of more than 40,000 working children between the ages of 7 and 18 years who live in Jordan, out of an estimated 246 million children engaged in child labor worldwide. Nearly 70% of these children work in dangerous conditions, and Ali himself almost lost his hand when he fell asleep while operating a chickpea grinding machine. Nadira is an 18-year-old Uzbekistanian girl who has never been to school because it is too far from her home and inaccessible for her wheelchair. She is fortunate to live with her family because the economic difficulties faced by many Uzbek families leads many parents to place children with disabilities in special institutions. Of the 23,000 children in institutional care, 19,626 have disabilities. While Nadira will most likely not finish her primary education or go to university, she may get her greatest wish, a true friend. Nadira says, What I want more than anything is a friend who has a disability, someone to talk to that will not feel sorry for me or make fun of me, somebody who will understand what my life is like. The fight against global poverty is a worldwide concern, and some of us are more positioned to be of help and to be educated on the subject than others. Many attribute the world's great wealth disparities to globalization and the movement of Western corporate business to developing countries to expand markets and make more money. Many corporations have factories and facilities abroad because labor is cheaper overseas, and as a result, we get cheaper products. However, while the economic realities of globalization are very serious and affect us daily, although we may not realize it, there are also cultural effects that spread across the world community. People from different cultures are interacting with each other more than ever, through this technology-filled world, and there are times when perhaps there are cultural misunderstandings. As a Briton who now lives in America, I can definitely attest to that. And even after six years of living here, there are still things I don't understand and ways in which I am misunderstood. While globalization has big economic effects, it is also giving us new cultural frontiers to tackle. But I think the most important thing to remember is that ultimately, we're all human. Excellent point. 
appreciate that. Corinne Collins. Um, now, in fact, it's the human side. The human factor is what I really want to focus on today. And so that's why we're bringing in one of our one of our experts, Crystal Radley, second-year grad student teaching at Brigham Young University. She's been an American citizen and lived 10 years in Bangkok and is now back teaching a writing course that's basically focused on globalization. Is that right, Crystal? Yep. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This is um, – now. okay, so help us understand this. So when we say globalization and we say col- culture – I mean to me it's about the culture. I mean I guess we can get into the financial globalization like Corinne was getting into. But what what is it culturally? Talk about the cultural side of globalization. The way I basically explain it to my students is um, because a lot of times they have a hard time differentiating between things that are global and things that are globalization related. Exactly right. Um, When you have something that's global, it's going on all around, but we're not exactly colliding with each other. Right. Once you get into globalization, it's really a lot of issues related to, okay, these countries are now colliding with each other in a way historically they never would have done before. Their cultures clash. They don't match each other very well. What do you do with that? Yeah, at odds at some. Some are just flat out at odds with each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will never forget. Here's my example of culture clash in the real world. So I went with my family to Israel to the Holy Mount. I can't remember. At Il-Aqsa Mosque, I believe it's called. So it's the Muslim holy ground on the Temple Mount, yep. which is the same Temple Mount of the Christians, which is the same Temple Mount. Oh, yeah. So it's the Muslim holy spot. And we're sitting there, and as we're walking up there, I'm holding my wife's hand. Okay. Walking onto the Holy of Holies, one of the Holy of Holies for the Muslim world, and they came unglued. And I was ignorant, totally ignorant to yeah. this cultural norm, and I'm violating it in a very big way. And they just wouldn't have it to the yeah. point they're like almost like scary threats like of pain. Oh, yeah. Well, and um, I was just talking to Corinne a minute ago about um, similar issues to this where you don't know. No. But because of the way culture is internalized in individual people, you unless you're told specifically this person does not know because their yeah. culture doesn't have that. Yeah. You don't recognize right. that this person's culture doesn't do the same thing. Right. And so it's so much, so much can be changed just by understanding other cultures and at least realizing that we don't understand you, other cultures. It's almost like they were in the bowl bubble. We were actually in the bubble, but we didn't know we were in a bubble. Oh, yeah. And, but but they're, in, they're interpreting our actions. So, of course, we must know because you wouldn't just walk up there and do that. Well, in our culture, we would. So it is, it's this battle of really the unknown. And unless you're saying unless we address the topic and like uh, formally investigate it or talk about it or yeah. discuss it, it just kind of goes unknown. Yeah. Um, and I feel both sides, oh, yeah. all of the different oh, yeah. sides ha- need to start realizing and, and trying to work together yeah. to understand that there isn't an understanding. Well, I mean, you just saw one where Mitt Romney went and declared – where is the capital of Israel, which set the Palestinians off? And it, but now, that was probably more political, which is different than even but – it, but it impacts. Cultural, you're just talking more day-to-day people, yeah. day-to-day understanding. Yeah. yeah. Um, a big issue that um, happens in Thailand when Americans go over in Thailand, it's, it's not rude. If something is visually obvious, yeah. like if someone weighs a lot, it's not rude to say like – 
in a store, oh, you're too you're too fat to wear that outfit. You shouldn't buy that. And so <laughs> the, the people at the store yeah. will tell you, like, oh, you're too fat. You shouldn't get that. And these American women are like, what? why would you say that to me? Do not state the obvious. Yeah, because we Isn't care so much more about tact. Isn't in our that interesting? So give me more. So you sit and teach these students. How do, how do you go about, like, trying to get them to start to understand cultures Cross cultures, understand. I actually have them, um, one of the first days every semester, I do an activity I like to call Globalization Show and Tell, where I have them do a little bit of reading on like Wikipedia about what globalization is, bring something in from their home that represents globalization to them, and we go around the room like in Show and Tell with elementary school, um, and uh, have them explain what does this mean, so that they can understand that globalization impacts them. Interesting. So they'll bring in... What, a watch from Germany or something? Yeah, and explain all of the different, like, how this has to do with globalization. I've had students bring in bananas that were imported from somewhere. Um, Let's see. um, Electronics, where they're saying, like, all of the items in this piece of electronics were made in these countries, but it was assembled in Japan, and then it was brought over here and marketed at Walmart. And It's very much, they tend to be very much just... Um, financial, economic, marketing, product-based globalization. That's where we hear the term the very yeah. most. But then there's just kind of the the sensibility of understanding a culture. One of the things that we see on BYU campus a lot, because all of the, there's a lot of missionaries that go to countries and cultures all over, we seem to come back, I guess, with some understanding of globalization and cultural differences. But it doesn't – it almost seems like we then kind of still slide back to our – our roots. Yeah, and I think that's part of the internalization of our own cultures. Yeah. We're you're always going to be a little ethnocentric. I yeah. don't think you can get away from yeah, that. Yeah, how could you? Yeah. And I tell my students that you don't need to completely get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Just recognize that it's there. Recognize that you're doing it and try to muscle past it so yeah. you can see what's going on outside I love of that. that. And then make a more conscious effort to understand the cultures. I mean, exactly. you'll have to be You'll never be able to be all cultural centric, right? I mean, oh, yeah. You'll never know all the cultures. So you're always going to be coming at it from ignorance anyway. Yeah. But I guess it's just acknowledging you're ignorant. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I can only, when the Olympics came to Utah, there was a lot of ignorance here, not just here, but amongst everyone. Oh, yeah. And then it's funny, it's kind of like driving. We've done funny jokes about everyone's driving in the world or in the country, about how everyone assumes everyone else's driving is more poor than. You're driving. Yeah. But the same thing is about our cultures. We kind of think France are stubborn, ignorant, you know, me or what a proud people. They uh, English think we're whatever. We all just think we're a bunch of whatevers. Yeah. And yet in reality, you're one world disaster away from recognizing we're all the same. Yeah. We all need to breathe. Yeah. We all need to eat. Exactly. It's huge. Yeah. What what else do you what else are you trying to do in your class? What are some other techniques you use in your class to get more of it out? Um, let's see. Um, well, I do teach a big lesson at the beginning. At the last paper they have to do is an issues paper where they have to pick a globalization issue, take a stance on it, and write a persuasive research paper about oh, that. Wow. And I do a big lesson at the beginning explaining, like, what is a third world country? Where did this term third world third country world, right. come from? Um What does it mean exactly? Because I had students my first semester throwing this out saying like, oh, yes, third world countries like Japan. And I'm like, "Uh, whoa, no, Japan's not. Yeah, Yeah, back that. (laughs) Um, So um, that and teaching them about uh, 
like thinking in terms of other countries. Don't just look at two countries and say like, well, obviously America's doing this right. Look at all the other countries. Yeah. Look at what they're thinking. Look what these these cultures are. Yeah. Where are they coming from? And try to understand and synthesize that instead Love of separating it. it. It's it really is. It's a it's an effort to truly understand somebody. It's easy to just assume your culture just dominates or it's, I mean, and not even noticing the bubble that you're in. So when we come back from the break, I really want to pick your brain, Crystal, because as somebody that is a U.S. citizen that's lived out of the country for 10 years and then comes back, I want to hear what it's like coming back. Awesome. And, um, and kind of pick your brain on that and figure out what are just some things that are fairly typical that Americans do that maybe we don't quite know are offensive. Okay. Maybe other cultures. We'll get into that, plus anything else you can think of, Crystal. We're being joined by Crystal Radley, a a teacher here at Brigham Young University, teaches uh, globalization um, via writing, a writing class. We'll come back with her right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Travel the musical road of American history on Highway 89 Scenic Byway. With music from talented musicians from BYU campus and across the globe, Highway 89 brings you the best performances from classical to jazz and folk to rock. Tune in for a musical journey with Highway 89 at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. Good afternoon for BYU Radio News. I'm Ian Jones. Here are some of the stories we're following today. The British government says Syria's most senior diplomat in London has defected. Correspondent Charles de Ledesma reports. Khaled El Ayoubi, the charge d'affaires in London, has told officials that he wasn't willing to represent the Syrian regime any longer. The British government's foreign wing, in turn, is urging others to follow El Ayoubi's example, to dissociate themselves from the crimes committed against the Syrian people and to support a peaceful and free future for Syria. El Ayoubi's departure represents a huge blow to Assad and his regime. Charles de la Desma, London. Members of the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team found themselves face-to-face with First Lady Michelle Obama on Sunday after their win at the London Games. Correspondent Kyle McKinnon reports. The latest incarnation of the men's basketball dream team handled France easily in its 2012 Olympic debut. First Lady Michelle Obama watched and cheered the team on from just a few feet off the court. Players like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, and Kevin Durant needed the boost as they were locked in a tight game after the first quarter, but after busting loose to win by 27, the entire team, one by one, went over to the First Lady for a hug. A very special moment, according to U.S. guard Carmelo Anthony, who said the team just wanted to thank her for the support. Kyle McKinnon, London. The U.S. economy grew at an annual rate of just 1.5 percent from April through June. AP correspondent David Melendi has more. Second quarter GDP is what economists expected, but still, says economist Gus Fauché at PNC Financial. That's disappointing. Americans cut back sharply on spending, businesses held on to lots of revenue, and Europe was a big drag. But Fauché thinks that's all about to change. I think we will see a little bit stronger growth in the second half of this year. He says he believes the worst is behind in Europe. The housing sector is starting to pick up, interest rates are low, and the weakness in business spending is temporary. And as businesses start to spend more... I do expect to see stronger hiring. David Melendi, Washington. A British journalist has been arrested for possible data theft in connection with a phone hacking scandal. We go back to correspondent Charles de Ledesma for the story. 
It's believed the journalist has been arrested as part of an investigation into the use of information taken from stolen cell phones. London police have only said that the arrest relates to a suspected conspiracy, while other sources suggest that it could be connected to handling stolen goods. The arrests loosely linked to a wider inquiry into phone hacking that's engulfed the British press and tarnished the reputation of police and politicians. Charles de la Desma, London. And that's all for now from the BYU Radio Newsroom. Thanks for joining us here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Ian Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with our guest, Crystal Radley, a second-year graduate student at Brigham Young University, who teaches a creative writing uh, class that involves, for first-year writing students, I guess, at the university. But her her topic focuses on globalization. And because the Olympics are here, we we want to see if we can't sensitize you a little bit more to the global world. Instead of making it us against them, we're one big happy family. We don't have to pit each other against each other. Now, we can, you know, to win some awards and medals. But when it comes right down to it, we are the same. We're just people. And uh, so, Crystal, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Now, I wanted to talk to you. So here you sit, you know, a U.S. citizen, lives out of the country. How long did you live in Thailand? Ten years total. Ten years total. Two different stints. What took you there? My dad's a geophysicist uh, for Chevron. Oh, wow. Chevron. Yep. He was <laughs> he, company. He was with Unical, but was he? Chevron ate Unical. So So and then so you go there, you're in Thailand, educated there. Yep. And how old were you when you were there the two times? Um, times? Two until age two until age nine, and yeah. then I moved there again when I was fifteen and I graduated high school. So there. Uh, did you really so you came nine at nine years old, did you come back to the United States? Yeah, I lived in Louisiana. You went from Thailand to Louisiana. Yes. <laughs> For Quite about a leap. six years, and then yeah. back to be educated in high school. Mm-hmm. Ay that's tough. Yeah. So tell okay. So tell me what you learned. The real life world of globalization, of cultural differences, and you, you tell me about that. Well, my school was really fascinating, just because it, it was an international school in a in a British based system, and so we were all speaking English, but. Um, Especially in elementary school, um, my best friend in elementary school was Japanese. I had Afghani friends and Filipino friends and Swedish friends, and How we were neat. just from from everywhere. And so it was sort of understood in elementary school. I mean, this is why I love the Olympics. It reminds me of elementary school. Everybody from all these different places playing games together. Yeah. Um, and then in high school, it was much more. People were very interested in global issues, but at the same time, many of my peers were the. Um, the children of diplomats. Oh, yeah. And so they were really interested in like in these globalization issues and it was just it was just in the air that we were breathing in that yeah. community. Everybody was into it. Well, I mean, and you're living it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then you come back to Louisiana. Yeah. What's that like? Now there's a whole new culture. Yeah. Yeah. The bayou. Mhm. Yeah, right. and I was in Acadiana. We were um yeah, I mean, that was very different to me. Suddenly, instead of a rainbow of ethnicities, it was Pretty much two. Yeah. Um, and there were tensions there that hadn't been present. I mean, if, if you were going to not be friends with somebody of a particular ethnicity or who wasn't your ethnicity yeah. in Thailand, you weren't going to have any friends. Like, you were the only person. Yeah, you would be out. Um, and so moving 
to a community where it was so much more polarized in that way was really challenging for me as a kid. I didn't really know what was going but on. But it's America. Yeah. The land of the free, the home of the brave. Yeah. So you're sitting here in Thailand with this melting pot, a real melting pot. Yeah. And yeah. then we come home. And it wouldn't have mattered where you landed. If you had landed no. in Utah, it would have probably been worse. I mean, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. And so what what do you sense is, that, I guess, what makes the openness? What made Thailand so open? Was it just because it was kind of forced on you, the culture? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially in elementary school, when you're a kid, and if somebody's uh, if if you're just around everybody from all these yeah. different countries, you, you just, just appreciate it. You understand. I mean, we recognized that uh, we we recognized that different people didn't speak English as well as other people did, right. and so they went to ESL classes, and yeah. we sort of understood that. But you still play on the same playground, and everyone can figure out how to play tag. It's not right. complicated, you know. And so we we you could just be friends, and it was fine. Um, and so. Uh, then having to move into a situation where, like, you do have to be aware of tensions between mm-hmm. cultures and things um, was really kind of jarring because it wasn't natural to what I'd been internalizing yeah. already as a kid. It's it's fascinating. Last night I sat around with a bunch of people. One of them had lived abroad in Hungary for two years. Oh, wow. One had lived abroad in Thailand, Argentina, all these different places. And I'm thinking that's just hugely valuable experience, getting out of your – comfort zone, kind of being pushed. Yeah. And I guess we we think we do it because we're going from one state to another state to go to college. But I guess it's entirely differently different going from one culture oh, yeah. to an entirely different culture. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially one that might be at odds with your culture. Mm-hmm. I mean that's a that's an interesting one too. Yeah. Just going I mean it's just going to I I went to Argentina on a LDS mission for two years and there's there they were at odds even with the United States. Yeah. It's just – it's fascinating. Yeah. How do you um, – how do you – because there's a bunch of stuff like people don't even know. Like what are some of the things that you learned that you didn't even know were – how do I put this? Like for example, sticking your thumb up in the air in some mm-hmm. cultures um, like Thailand. Yeah, Thailand included. Like uh, the Middle East is mm-hmm. just offensive. It's mm-hmm. like flipping the bird. Yep. Right? So – then you come back to the U.S. Did you know that before? How did you know – how did you learn the concept that we don't do that? Did you have to come back to Louisiana and have people start giving you thumbs up before well, you were okay. like, what? Um, I, we were watching TV. We would come back and visit relatives. And so we knew that that was a thing An issue. in the yeah. States. Yeah. Um, but we also had been told specifically like, OK, don't do that in Thailand. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't do that. Do not do that. Um, and, and so that one's not not so much – that didn't of an shock internalized you. thing. That one wasn't shocking, but um, in Thailand, you don't you don't touch somebody's head. Like you don't like ruffle somebody's hair. Right. Um, and people will do that to me still. Like just sort of walk by and like ruffle my hair to be nice. Like my friends and they don't know. And I'm like <laughs> I'm like, why are you doing that to me? Isn't that interesting? You, you're insulting me. You I'm think I'm less head. than you? Yeah. Um, but that's so interesting because that is not that's not that's just in you. Yeah. Your offense to that is comes from Thailand. Yeah. And some Americans rubbing on your head. Yeah, and I and I recognize that, so it's not like I'm gonna turn around and be like, oh, how what? dare you? But, but yeah, but yeah. we but they had no idea. Yeah. And they're just offending you. Yeah. I mean, hypothetically, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. What other things did you see? Um or that, that you know, or even just like even more like geopolitical, like bigger that just about how Americans approach things that maybe might seem a little less sensitive to certain cultures. Oh, well, um, 
for example, I, I would often growing up get really aggravated at tourists walking around Bangkok. I would be downtown Bangkok. It's a it's a big city. It's a metropolitan yeah. area. In the States, when you're walking around a big city, you're typically fully dressed, right? But right. you'd have these American guys walking around like in swim trunks <laughs> and flip-flops, like walking downtown Bangkok in the middle With of like the like an American flag swimsuit. Pretty much, essentially. <laughs> and And – this is not the beach, dude. Right. Like, and Where's it made pants? me it made me upset to mm-hmm. see like, oh, I don't want to be associated with tourists. I don't want people yeah. to think I'm a tourist seeing me here, because oh, I respect your culture enough yeah. to to at least know like I'm not going to walk up and down the streets of Bangkok dressed like it's the beach. It's interesting how dress is a big deal culturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what we think we can get away with with what we we can't. Oh, it's funny because I can almost hear some people out there saying, "Oh, give it up, whatever. We're Americans. We we can do whatever we want." But there is something about it. When in Thailand, do as the Thai. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is that well, how the I mean, phrase goes. Yeah, I guess it would. Yeah, I mean, let's let's get into them enough to care, respect. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we wanted to bring on Corinne Collins, who's one of our. She's one of our producers here. We also call her our our ABBC, our almost BBC <laughs> broadcaster. But Corinne, you're from you're from Birmingham, Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham, England. Yes, Birmingham, England. Okay. Now we one of the things I know that we tick you off a lot because we all try to do your <laughs> accent. What do you think of that? What do you think about a bunch of Yanks trying to pull off your accent? Oh, it's like so irritating to me. It's just I don't, but I don't know why you do it. Like I, this is the thing. So it's another <laughs> thing, right? I come here and and everyone, I hear everyone doing British accents. Literally, I'll be sitting in a cafeteria and there'll be a group of teenagers doing British accents just in their spare time, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Like, do you have nothing better to do? Yeah, and that's like, my don't reaction. Do that. And because I don't understand the fascination, because I've been British my entire life. Yeah. you know, I speak the way I. I speak and it's not exciting to me to no. speak the way that I speak, but I guess it's exciting to other people. And Did so you I have, say exciting? Exciting. Exciting. Yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't flow as it's, well when you do it. It, it sounds. It, it sounds forced because totally we, we once tried to get one of our because we we had a friend in Thailand who was. Um, I th- British. She, she, it was complicated. She lived in Australia. Um, and we tried to get her to imitate our accents. Yeah. And she sounded like a pirate. Like she was like, Arr. Arr. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, See, we suddenly realized like, yeah, it does sound really silly when somebody's trying Coco to imitate. Coco can do it. Corinne can do it. She can actually do. Sometimes we'll ask her to do a, uh, one of her bits, we, uh, whatever, her, one of her stories in an English accent. She can do it. You can pull it off. In an American accent or an yeah, English American accent? Yeah, American accent, sorry. Yeah, I've done it before. You don't sound like a pirate. No. Well, maybe I've, I've, been, I've lived here for a while. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe at this point, maybe that we are so much more globalized that like there's so much American TV in England that, I, I mean, the whole country can do an American accent to yeah. a decent, you know, decent degree. Except then we mix it up with Australian, like put another oh. shrimp on Bobby. Well, the, thing, the funny thing about that is that an Australian person wouldn't say shrimp. They call them prawns. So like, oh. that's a completely American thing. Well, they put another shrimp on the body. See, but we're, we're making it ours is what I'm yeah. saying. We're, well, we're American. <laughs> I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and I'm sure the Australians love that. I've heard Australians bet, complain about that. Aren't we messed up? <laughs> so what else have you seen that we do as Americans that is kind of like, Ugh, pick it up a bit? Um, I was, I was sharing this example with you guys before earlier, um, saying that, in England, if you don't hear, if you mishear someone, so if someone says something and you don't hear what they say, um, 
You say pardon. You don't say what yeah, or like how. Pardon's nice. Yeah, pardon's nice and polite. So if someone says what or how to you, it sounds rude. Huh? Almost like you don't really care what they're saying. They're oh, like you're like uh huh. And so if you do that to someone, most people will be like, well, I'm not going to talk to you. And so what happens is um, American tourists will go to England and they'll be talking to someone at a cu- customer service desk, and they'll they won't hear what yeah. they say or they won't understand what they say, and they'll say what. And the, that person will be like, okay, well, I really don't want to help you. And so they'll be frosty. and Yes, you know, this, frosty. I mean, yeah, they'll be frosty. And obviously, I have lived here for a while, so I know. Yeah, that, you don't do that. Yeah, that, you know, that Americans do that and they don't mean any offense. But well, that's my mom finds it very, very offensive. Well, and so it, the that. offense is kind of two ways. I guess me mm-hmm. not knowing not to say that. And then you actually be offended because you think I intended right. to frost you. But then you can do this. <laughs> the Brits do it to the French. Talk talk about what you learned about with the French when they compliment. Oh yeah, so so in France, and this is the thing. So this is the difference between learning a language and learning a, a language culturally. culturally. So you could learn a language, and so someone compliments you in in French, and you say thank you to them in French. Um, they would think that you're very arrogant because in France you're supposed to say, oh, do you think so, or oh, really? If you say thank you, it just means like, oh yeah, I know. I know. I'm so yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? We're messed up. How <laughs> So how on earth do we do this? How do you – you were talking about earlier that we have to at some point, I guess, talk, start negotiating almost culturally and start yeah. saying there's differences. How do we – how do you sense that we do it? You do it through writing. Yeah. But what would you – what would both of you suggest? If I'm an American going to Europe or going to Thailand, what would I – what should I be doing to make sure I'm culturally sensitive. Do you want to take it? You go ahead. You go ahead, Chris. Okay, I'll go for it. Um, Probably just openness. Like if if you notice that all of a sudden the customer service representative got frosty, (laughs) Frosty. say, oh, I'm sorry, did I say something offensive? Like just ask. Teach me. Yeah. Be be open to that. Be That's willing huge. to have that experience of, of learning and making mistakes. That's how we learn. It's kind of like just a sense of humility, isn't it? Yeah. At some point, show some humility. How about you, Corinne? What do you sense? I think um, I think reading has a big as a like the media you consume, reading news, the way because the way yeah. that we write about our cultures is different. The British Says news lot, is different exactly. from the American news, yeah. but especially reading novels. I mean, or just just text or short stories or something. You can find out a lot of cultural things about the way people behave mm-hmm. from their literature, and so. I I mean, obviously, I'm an English person, so that's Two what I'm going to plug. Majors here. But at the same time, like, I, that's how I've learned a lot of stuff about America. Um, what in do my you experience. read? That, oh, just our news and how we. Yeah, I re- you mean reading the news and the issues that you care about are mm-hmm. not the same issues that the people in the UK necessarily care about. So I'll read like the same story from the BBC and then from ways. an American news news um, cast. So yeah. Yeah, interesting. Ben Wagner's got something to say here. He's getting all chompy on the bit. Yeah, along the same line, when I moved to England, I went and lived in London for a couple of months. Um, when I was there, I made it a, a point specifically to try and read the paper every day, it's whether that idea. was whether that was the London Evening Standard, which is a free paper, or whether that was the London Times, whenever I had the money to buy it. I would try and read the newspaper every day, and I learned so much more about British culture just by uh, sort of immersing myself in the news culture every day, you, did you can notice learn so much a difference? more. Did you, you notice a specific difference? Oh, yeah. Just I mean, about the, how just they think. The way they... the British media writes is very um, – I mean, it's very specific. It's very different from the way the media writes here. That's but that true. helped me a lot to sort of catch on to a lot of little things about British culture and politics and stuff yeah. like that that I wouldn't have otherwise caught on to. Yeah. Well, and you got – you were excited. You, you fell in love with England. You yeah, fell absolutely. in love with everything about it. 
Um, Coco's giving him thumbs up. Oh, that's offensive. That's like flipping. <laughs> We're in America off. now. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> it's to me, it's fascinating because I guess the key is is get in the culture and stay open. Yeah. And teachable. Yeah. Is that the basic gist? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you don't have to do everything right, and maybe it's maybe it's that I'm coming from. Uh, I know I know Europe tends to be different, and, yeah. and Asia is is where I'm most comfortable, yeah. but. It, my experience has been overwhelmingly that if you're willing to ask questions and try and figure it out, you're good. That's you're huge. Gold. You know what? We need more. We need open people now. We're in a we're in a global world, folks. If you don't believe me, just wait. One disaster, we will all <laughs> unite and be joined together. Corinne Collins, appreciate it so much, and Crystal Radley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excellent insight. We're trying our best here, folks, giving you the tools, the ideas you need, hopefully, to stay open, to learn about other cultures, new cultures. Obviously, we can't learn everything about every culture, but you can learn some things about a few cultures. So a little challenge for you. Start broadening your horizons. Learn about other people, other cultures, and see what they're offering the world. We'll be back with more tools and ideas right here on The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Connect with Matt on BYU Radio's Facebook page and Twitter at BYU Radio. Dieters and people who just want to live in a more healthy way now have the ultimate nutritional coach on their side. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Ask anybody and they'll tell you they want to eat healthier, but they easily get confused and discouraged trying to track calories and follow complex formulas. Add the confusion from weekly claims and counterclaims that some superfood will solve this deficiency or that they can't eat their favorite foods ever. Is it any wonder why people give up diets and pig out? There is a space-age answer to the problem, and it's called Vitabot. A former NASA engineer looked at the problem of diet management from his perspective of building telerobotic hardware. He saw the software he wrote for driving robot arms could also handle all the calculations and variables of making nutrition decisions. Vitabot is a web-based personal coach containing thousands of nutritional facts from the National Academy of Science and all the USDA's food data. It instantly looks at whatever you're having and suggests what to add or subtract to make a healthier, balanced meal. A natural side effect is weight loss without drama. Major corporations are using Vitabot in their fitness programs now. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Why not get your business involved as a sponsor of Cougar Sports on BYU TV, BYU Radio, and BYUTVSports.com. For details, call 801-422-1448 or email corporate support at byu.edu. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're trying to give you a taste of culture. We're trying to uh, hopefully broaden your horizons again while we're watching the Olympics. There is much to celebrate. The sports are phenomenal. You know, the world reach, it's exciting. And it's a great time, a great opportunity to start reaching out and getting a taste of the flavor of the world and um, and truly starting to appreciate opening up your mind a little bit, remaining humble and getting into the culture of those 
around us. That is really, to me, the goal of today's show is to hopefully have you try to intentionally become a little bit more open to the diversity, ethnicity, just the world uh, and, and what it has to offer. Now, with the Olympics going on, it's rather ironic that we gather as a world to be so separated, right? Hopefully it's all just a friendly competition. But you can't help sometimes feeling the undertones, in the undertones, that there's more going on for some people. Bryce Tobin, one of our producers, takes a change of pace from his normal routine of ranting to talk about something that he feels very strongly about. Normally, when I do one of these, it starts out with some peppy theme music, and it's followed by some story or experiences laced with sarcasm and some non-threatening but still very cutting humor. That's not what it's going to be today. And I'm not sure whether to apologize or say you're welcome, but in the very least, I want you to see. To help you understand and to frame where all of this is about to come from, I'll be quoting heavily from two of my favorite people, Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson. As a species, we started out the same. We must have. But somewhere along the way, we began to divide. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm sure it served some purpose. I want to believe that it was a difficult decision made out of necessity. But since then, things have gotten carried away. We began to define ourselves by our differences. That's fine. It's rather convenient. But then we began to tear others down because of their differences. Or we began to attribute too much to these differences, most horrifyingly another's importance, potential, or their worth. Our language became divisive. For one reason or another, we began to draw lines in the ground. And when those lines were not respected, we built fences and walls. And it only gets worse from there. Then something changed. December 24th, 1968, astronaut William Anders was on the other side of the moon, and he could not have comprehended the ripples he would create. But to our illimitable appreciation, he broke protocol and took some unscheduled photos. And we received quite possibly the most influential and precious Christmas Eve gift we could never have anticipated. We know it as Earthrise over the moon. There was our world, our cradle, precariously suspended in nothingness. That day we saw our Earth for the first time. We discovered it for the first time. But not as the map maker would have you see it. The countries were not color-coded or with boundaries. It was seen as nature intended it to be viewed. And we were hunters and foragers. Then we were bounded only by the earth, the ocean, and the sky. The open road still softly calls. We who cannot even put our own planetary home in order, riven with rivalries and hatred, are we to venture out? Are we to progress? By the time we're ready to settle even the nearest planetary systems, we will have changed. The simple passage of so many generations will have changed us. Necessity will have changed us. But we're an adaptable species. It will not be we who reach the nearby stars, but it will be a species very like us. But with more of our strengths and fewer of our weaknesses, more confident, far-seeing, capable, and prudent. They have to be, because we are not. But for all our failings, despite our limitations and fallibilities, we humans are capable of greatness. Our remote descendants arrayed on many worlds throughout the solar system and beyond will be unified by their common heritage and the knowledge that the only humans in all the universe come from Earth. They will gaze up and strain to find the blue dot in their skies. They will marvel at how vulnerable the repository of raw potential once was, how perilous our infancy, how humble our beginnings. That Christmas Eve had a profound effect on our world, 1970, the Comprehensive Clean Air Act is passed. Earth Day began March of 1970. The Environmental Protection Agency was founded in 1970. 
The organization Doctors Without Borders was founded in 1971. Before that, people were not thinking of the world. Nobody threw around phrases like without borders before that day. They had only known the divided globe. This world is no longer a world of us and them, or mine and theirs, but we and our. This is our world. This is our story. Let's make it one worth telling. Well done, Bryce Tobin. First time in the history of Bryce that the word Bryce is right actually works. Good job, Bryce. A totally different tone than we've ever heard from him, but he nails it. It really is. Uh, it's a pivotal moment, the, the day we look at our earth and we don't see the boundaries between cultures and countries anymore. It's, it's a powerful thing. To me, I'm just going to challenge all of you out there in listening land. Again, you know, we have our issues. We have jobs crossing borders. We have all these concerns, financial insecurity, but global markets are impacting the finances as well. Can I just challenge you to start looking for more um, in the world for what we have in common? We all have a desire to be healthy, to, to raise children. We want to be happy. We all want to be able to make a living and sustain our families. Every human, I think, on this earth wants to be free from fear and free from um, tyranny. We want to be able to love one another and be accepted for who we are. There's so much more that we have in common than um, the things that divide us. So as part of the Ta- Matt Townsend Show, we want to challenge you. Start looking for the good. Look for the good of the people uh, as you're watching the Olympics. Find the joy in the stories of the people that aren't necessarily from your culture or from your um, country. See if you can't connect to just the good-hearted desire and nature, the hard work that's been put out there by all of those athletes, by the coaches, by the teams. And maybe don't get too caught up in the in the country wars that might be taking place there. And maybe get up uh, a little bit more and, and find 